Alright, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. Recently on the channel, I did an episode called True Crime Talk Radio, which was reminiscent of something from 2019, where I did an episode called Serial Killer Talk Radio, and that one had a follow-up called More Serial Killer Talk Radio. It was back in the days of the more pure podcast format, where there was just the black box and those wonderful pink bubbles on the screen. Someone to keep people engaged while they were listening along to Black Box Online Radio. And in fact, that episode, More Serial Killer Talk Radio, became one of my favorite episodes that I have ever recorded, especially being able to discuss the material coming from many different cases at once, looking at the similarities, the commonalities. How does humanity function? Just asking and answering that question, and that episode is part of a new playlist that has been made available here on Black Box Online Radio. Just some of those uh, similar episodes from 2019, and that is included. Here you'll find a link to that. The best way you can support this channel is just by listening to some more content. I mean, not asking for any kind of donations or anything. Yeah, there's a Teespring page now, and you can see the uh, t-shirts that are available. Almost all sizes and colors are listed, but that's not the real way to support the show. The real way is just by checking out some more content. If you like what you hear, you can share with your friends and family, anybody who is interested in uh, the true crime world, but mostly just have a listen and leave some comments below. Continue the discussion. So I would like to uh, begin with something about the Zodiac Killer, though, because somebody left a recent comment talking about the Zodiac Killer suspect, Earl Van Best, even mentioning him as a prime suspect. Earl Van Best Jr. is the subject of Gary Stewart's book, The Most Dangerous Animal of All, and in addition to the playlist that um, I was just talking about, I also have a playlist on The Most Dangerous Animal of All by Gary Stewart and Susan Mustafa, and it's one of the few times when I'm actually telling people, please do not buy that book. I implore you, I beg you, please do not buy that book by Gary Stewart. Everything you will want to know about Earl Van Best as a Zodiac Killer suspect is in those episodes that I did. It's a nine-part book discussion. And, of course, there's the FX Hulu documentary series on Earl Van Best as a Zodiac Killer suspect. But when I said everything you want to know about that book is in those episodes. I get into a lot more of the early life of Earl Van Best, which Gary Stewart talked about in his book. I mean, it's not even an honest attempt at putting across a convincing Zodiac Killer suspect. I would highly doubt that anybody associated with the publication of that book even thought that Earl Van Best was the Zodiac Killer. Susan Mustafa, the co-writer, by her own admission said, they wrote a biography of Earl Van Best, and then they just paraphrased the police reports. In the book discussion, I refer to it as taking Robert Graysmith's narrative and the Zodiac letters and then just paraphrasing that, but her admission was it was actually from the police reports, and you'll find very cheap sentences like, Earl Van Best drove to Lake Berryessa. This time, he decided to wear a hood. I mean, Earl Van Best almost um, certainly was not the Zodiac Killer, and it's highly likely that he wasn't even in the country at the time of the... Uh, the murders that took place in 1969, it's likely, but not proven, that he was in Austria. His third wife, Edith Coase, was actually from Austria, and they bonded over their connection of the German language. That's also how Earl Van Best bonded over the, um, bonded with his closest friend, William Lomas. 
So Earl Van Bess is a fascinating individual, and there was that one question once, if you could have a 10-minute conversation with any serial killer, who would it be? I was tempted to put Earl Van Best as, at the top of my list, except for the fact that he most likely didn't kill anybody. He has been accused of being a serial killer, but Earl Van Best was a different type of criminal. He was involved with a crime spree that was dealing with forgery, as well as um, abduction perhaps even kidnapping, because his second wife was Judith Chandler, who goes on to become the mother of Gary Stewart, Gary Stewart, Earl Van Best's biological son. Judith Chandler was 13 years old when Earl Van Best met her, and they used to go to this place called Herbert Sherbert Shop. Excellent name, by the way. And then a certain reporter named Paul Avery latched on to the story, and he began writing about it, calling her the Sunday Bride and calling it the Ice Cream Romance. And they ran off to Nevada and actually got married, even though Judith Chandler was underage. So the marriage had to have been annulled. Earl Van Best was married at least three times. And he was someone who seems like a person of above-average intelligence, definitely a Machiavellian figure, but somebody who thought that he could weave around the laws of society because he was so intelligent that they did not apply to him, or at least that's uh, Gary Stewart and Susan Mustafa's assessment of him. But I have numerous episodes about Earl Van Best. If anyone would like to look at things that are not in the playlist, some standalones, even an Earl Van Best Q&A, I don't believe for a second that he was the Zodiac Killer. And in fact, I just have to say it again, I beg you not to read that book. You can find all about it here on this channel, as well as looking at some of the other commentary sources. But moving on to another subject, I would like to do an update on a true crime case that I was talking about last year, and that is the murder of Dwayne Simmons. The episode on this channel is called The Attempted Murder of Corey Ballantyne and the Murder of Dwayne Simmons, and it relates to the suspect, Francisco Alejandro Mendez, who shot and killed Dwayne Simmons and he goes by the name Frankie very frequently. They were actually out celebrating Corey Ballantyne being drafted by the New York Giants, and it turned into a moment of tragedy where Ballantyne was shot in the hip, and his best friend Dwayne Simmons was murdered, and to um, the credit of the New York Giants, Corey Ballantyne said they were very, um, very generous with the rehab, as like, talking about the physical rehab, as well as providing him with counseling following the murder of his best friend. Corey Ballantyne is actually now playing for the New York Jets. But I would like to go to an article that was published in the Topeka Capital and available on CJ Online. It was written by Tim Renshier, and this is from May of 2021, the month, same month as the time of this recording. Shawnee County District Judge Cheryl Rios on Monday scheduled the trial for Frankie Mendez on November 29th the man accused of the 2019 gunshot killing of Washburn University football player Dwayne Simmons. The trial is expected to last two weeks. Francisco Alejandro Mendez, also known as Frankie, is age 20. Rios also scheduled a status conference to take place September 7th, and a pretrial hearing will be on October 18th. Mendez wore wire-rimmed glasses and a Shawnee County jail jumpsuit as he appeared at Monday's hearing, accompanied by his defense attorney, Shay Downing. Downing told Rios she hadn't been in contact with the district attorney, Mike Kagay's office, regarding any potential plea agreement in the case, though she anticipated they would have some discussion. Rios initially suggested a trial of August 13th, but Downing said that that wouldn't fit into her schedule. Frankie Mendez faces charges that include first-degree murder in the April 28, 2019 slaying near 1287 Southwest Lane, 
of Dwayne Simmons and the attempted murder of his best friend, Corey Ballantyne, a former Washburn football player who was drafted by the New York Giants only hours earlier. Simmons died at the scene, and Ballantyne survived after being shot once in the hip. He played the last two seasons with the Giants and is now with the New York Jets. So I understand that uh, Frankie Mendez has uh, pled guilty to this, but um, I was actually just listening to an episode of the Stones Unturned podcast. You know, you guys know I followed that one, the one that's hosted by Thomas Henry Horn, and he did say something about the about first degree murder in plea deals. If you plead guilty to first degree murder, you still have to go through the trial. And um, I am totally not a lawyer, so that was the first time that I heard that. But um, it seems like it is quite relevant to these current events. And that's exactly what Frankie Mendez will do. And I'm going to follow this one simply because I hope that justice is served, and it appears that it will be. And it's an absolute tragedy. I mean, someone gets drafted into the NFL, and they're going out to celebrate, and then they get shot. There might be a, a little bit of um, confusion about the events that occurred. But this was one event where people were immediately throwing focus onto Dwayne Simmons and Corey Ballantyne, thinking that, all right, you got these two football players that are out celebrating. They must have been doing something wrong, right? But when I did the episode on the murder of Dwayne Simmons, it seems like the official narrative is some guys in a car, including Frankie Mendez, just approached them, and they started exchanging words. There was no, like, drug deal going on. There was no illegal activity done on the part of Corey Ballantyne and Dwayne Simmons. And after another individual who has been featured on the channel once, DeAndre Baker, got in trouble with the law, I saw somebody post in the comments section, after what happened with Corey Ballantyne and Dwayne Simmons, people should realize that just because some athletes are involved with something like a shooting or something like illegal activity, it doesn't mean that they are the source of that illegal activity. Paraphrasing, of course, but that's a general idea. The blame shouldn't immediately fall on them because they're athletes who are out celebrating and act like they've done something wrong. And this, um, it really appears that uh, Corey Ballantyne and Dwayne Simmons did not do a whole lot to instigate the situation. Somebody saw them, and Frankie Mendez may have committed the crime in haste, thinking that he was going to get away with it, but it looks like he will possibly spend the rest of his life behind bars. However, that other individual, DeAndre Baker, I was talking about, he seems much more guilty of something, and I hope he has a fun time on the Kansas City practice squad. Okay, moving on to the next segment. I happened to just catch this one in the headlines. It's like I got a notification on my phone, and they were talking about how a criminal got arrested because he posted a photo of his hand holding a piece of cheese Blue cheese Stilton or something like that. I have no idea what a Stilton is. I'm really not one of those um, fromagerie types, but um, it apparently is some type of cheese. And the authorities were able to scan his fingerprints in the photograph, and they were able to arrest the guy. And I would like to go to this article here to help us out. This one was written by Rob Pachetta, drug dealer jailed after sharing a photo of cheese that included his fingerprints. A drug dealer whose fingerprints were analyzed by police when he shared a photo of his hand holding a block of cheese has been sentenced to 13 years and 6 months in prison. Carl Stewart from Liverpool, Northwestern England, sent a picture of an encrypted device, a second picture on an encrypted device, of a block of Stilton he had found in an upmarket British grocery store, Marks and Spencers. And, and the Merseyside police released this later in a statement. But the photograph was discovered by the police, who used it to analyze his fingerprints and identify Stewart. Authorities said Stewart's love of Stilton cheese led to his arrest. I have 
don't really know what this is, so um, this better be a good type of cheese if this guy's going to jail for 13 years for it. He was jailed on Friday after pleading guilty to conspiracy to supply cocaine, heroin, MDMA, and ketamine to transferring and to transferring criminal property, the police said. Stewart sent an image on EncroChat, an encrypted messaging service used exclusively by criminals that was infiltrated by the police in a major operation last year. What the hell is that, EncroChat? An encrypted messaging service used exclusively by criminals. That is the dumbest thing ever. Okay, of course we have stuff like the dark web, the dark net, and so on. But the whole point of the dark net is you're not supposed to know about it. I mean, it's supposed to be these things that are hidden. I mean, the police do infiltrate them. And we, we talked a lot about the dark web when I did the episodes on Madeline McCann. And I even do have an episode about Madeline McCann and the um, type of Pizzagate connection to that here on this channel. Yeah, okay, the dark web is very real. But to create something called EncroChat, where it's like, hey, we're the dark web, but we're cool about it, that's just asking for trouble. Carl Stewart was involved in supplying large amounts of Class A and Class B drugs, but was caught out by his love of Stilton cheese after sharing a block of it in his hand. Through EncroChat, Detective Inspector Lee Wilkinson said in a statement, I mean, I complain about the YouTube censors here. I complain about how sometimes the algorithm is misdirecting people, or especially when it's deleting your guys' comments. That absolutely is the worst. Auto-deletes and these bots are going all over YouTube. But this is technology going in a way that is really good because they caught a criminal because he posted a photo of cheese and it had his fingerprints in it. But doesn't that just make things a little bit scary? And a little bit scary about what technology can do. And who is that guy's name? What was it Yvonne Block or something who said the ability to create technology will surpass humanity's ability to survive. And Albert Einstein said something very similar when he was like, technology has surpassed the capabilities of humanity. And I never read anything about Einstein where he actually said that. I heard it in the movie Powder, which was um, uttered by Jeff Goldblum, I believe he says it, the movie Powder, about the guy who, well, it's um, allegedly a story of humanity surpassing technology. Uh, the, the prime example of the stuff that Yvonne Block was talking about is when they say, we have enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world three times. Firstly, I don't know if that's true, but that was his point, that we have such intense military technologies around that it could destroy humanity many times over. And very similar with these, um, well, with, with the technology that they're going to be using in forensics, that could be used as a very constructive tool. It could also be used as something where they could be very, very controlling. Authoritarian governments would love something like that. I did an episode once on the channel where I was talking about Ruby Ridge, the Ruby Ridge massacre that involved um, Randy Weaver in Boundary County, Idaho, as well as the Illuminati. And most people wouldn't think those two things go together. And I'm not even um, 100% they go together perfectly. But there were some quotations that I brought up from a different YouTuber in that one, and there were two things about the Illuminati. The first is, if there is an Illuminati out there, they probably don't call themselves the Illuminati. And the second thing is that the concept of government is something scary. She was a female YouTuber, and that's the way she said it. The concept of government is scary 
But like, when you think about it, taking away like the silliness, that's actually kind of true. You just have this group of people who is supposed to make decisions that are going to be affecting hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And couldn't somebody abuse that power? Yeah, I know we got like systems of checks and balances or something, but I mean, these things get abused all the time. So when I use the term Illuminati here on this channel, I refer to it as the people who have the knowledge of corruption and of oligarchy and the people who know how the um, things like the deep state are functioning, the people who know about the financial pressures that are being put on a politician to behave in a certain way, that's what I think the Illuminati is. Yes, of course, there was a real society from Bavaria in the 1800s, but I think the Illuminati is just the people who have knowledge of corruption, of how the power mechanisms truly work in Washington, D.C., and in other governments around the world. So maybe that's a little bit simpler. And I'm going to confess something to you guys in this next segment. I had a different motivation for doing this uh, episode in this way today. I had wanted to talk about the murder of Irene Silverman, which I'll get to in just a second. But I found that if I were to do an episode on that, it's connected to like three or four hours more of material, more material that would like fill that time block. Irene Silverman was allegedly murdered by Shantae and Kenny Kimes, and they made a uh, fascinating movie about it called Like Mother, Like Son, where uh, Mary Tyler Moore is playing Shantae Kimes, where you would have a mother-son con family, where it's primarily the uh, mother and the son who are operating in this. Ke uh, Kenny Kimes had a brother named Kent, but um, he disassociated himself from the family, more or less, and... I wanted to talk about that one, but I found that there were so many uh, other topics going around that, that we should include some of them as well. But with the murder of Irene Silverman, there was a very particular detail that I wanted to zone in on, and that relates to how she was um, killed and how the defendants were prosecuted. So I'd like to go to an article from the New York Daily News, and this one was written by Mara Bovson, um, April 29th, and it says... Manhattan socialite Irene Silverman, age 82, vanished from her East 65th Street mansion sometime after Independence Day in 1998. Her corpse was never found. But police still brought her killers, mother and son grifters, Shantae and Kenny Kimes, to justice. No body, no crime was the Kimes family motto. Kenneth, age 24, would later boast, but it didn't hold true this time. Silverman had no clue she was opening her door to death when she agreed to rent an apartment to a tall young man who offered to pay $6,000 a month for rent in cash. I remember watching that on the television as a kid. I mean, it was a very powerful movie because it's so dramatic and emotional. I saw this one perhaps in uh, 2002, 2003, thereabouts. And um, the um, I was like, wow, $6,000 for an apartment? What is this thing made of gold? And it turns out it was actually made of uh, black marble. But uh, that's kind of like gold sometimes. But the other thing that really did stand out is like, if you watch that movie, Mary Tyler Moore is just going to be shouting, if there's no body, then she wasn't murdered. And like you see that in this quotation right here, no body, no crime. And Shantae Kimes was somebody who grew up in somewhat of a problematic 
way, very um, dysfunctional upbringing, and she was very prone to shoplifting, and these tendencies were inherited by her son, Kenny Kimes, who got pulled into the family con jobs, who got pulled into the deception and the criminal behavior. And the reason why I thought that um, this couldn't uh, be just an episode standalone on the murder of Irene Silverman is because Shantae and Kenny Kimes were connected into other murders, and I felt that the appropriate focus of that type of episode would be something on the murderous web of Shantae and Kenny Kimes. And I really wanted to even have just a segment like this that could actually focus on Irene Silverman, where she is renting out this room to Kenny Kimes, and he starts displaying very bizarre and very weird behavior, and she becomes very suspicious. But um, let's uh, keep going right here. The couple's long history union started in 1941, shortly after someone spotted a petite little Irene, then a ballet dancer, parroting on the stage at the Radio City Music Hall. In the years following, Irene would grow up to be the vivacious red-haired widow who became a socialite after the passing of her husband Sam. She took college classes, she was entertaining, and was just being one of those people who gives New York its character, a generous soul, who carried a French champagne bottle in her purse. Across the country in California, an equally flamboyant but not so pleasant woman took notice, Shantae Kimes, who loved Cadillacs, diamonds, fur coats, and ensembles that enhanced her resemblance to movie legend Elizabeth Taylor. Like Silverman, who said she had been born above a New Orleans brothel, Kimes came from poor stock. Her father was a farmhand who abandoned his family. Her mother had been a Los Angeles prostitute. By the time the girl was 22, she had already had two ex-husbands and a son, along with a long list of aliases and arrests. Ten years after the first brush with the law for stealing a hairdryer in 1961, I mean, talk about a lousy crime, Shantae met Kenneth Kimes, a businessman, 18 years her senior, he also came from a, from a poor background, the son of an Oklahoma farmer, but he made a fortune sell, selling roadside materials to buildings and then later on opening motels during the post-World War II boom. The couple was always in trouble, frauds, thefts, lawsuits, and violence. Fires kept breaking out at their homes, followed by efforts to collect on insurance. In one bizarre case, Shante attempted to swipe a $6,500 mink coat from a piano bar by simply putting it on and walking out the door. In the late 1980s, she went to jail for three years, her first time behind bars in a long criminal career, for treating Mexican maids at her homes in uh, San Diego like slaves. And that's actually featured in the movie uh, Like Mother, Like Son, where she starts assaulting um, a... Uh, housekeeper with um, a hot iron, actually. Kenneth Kimes died in 1994, leaving Shantae and the couple's son, also named Kenneth, to fend for themselves. Crime was in the family blood, and Kenneth had a tendency toward violence, so he easily slipped into the role of Mama's accomplice. And with the murder of um, Irene Silverman, she would go on to vanish soon after the 4th of July celebration. Bear in mind, Irene Silverman's only connection to Kenny Kimes is being the landlady. Police picked up Shantae and Kenny a day later in their stolen Lincoln town car. Detectives found a 9mm handgun, hypodermic syringes, date rape drugs, and a treasure trove of forged documents containing Irene Silverman's social security number and the deed to her mansion. Evidence at their grifter trial was circumstantial. Still, with no body, no confession, and no eyewitnesses, prosecutors managed to get convictions. 
and sentences, adding up to two and a half centuries. And yes, they ended up spending the rest of their lives in jail. The son of Shante Kimes, the first one, Kent, he went on to write a book about it called Son of a Grifter. But, I mean, this is um, shocking on all cases all around, because even as a teenager, when I was watching this on television, I remembered... One of the cards that they put up at the end of the movie that the remains of Irene Silverman have never been located. And this is the defense that they're playing. That if there's no body, how do you know that they actually killed her? And you gotta wonder about that. Would that not cause reasonable doubt? I mean, I can tell you off the top of my head, do I think they did it? Yes. But beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond the shadow of a doubt, is there any possibility that maybe they weren't immediately responsible for her death? because that's being charged with murder. And the second issue is that, is this a case where someone has been treated unfairly? It's so hard to say based on the despicable nature of Shantae and Kenny Kimes, but um, you do have to wonder about that. And I think this also adds into the, um, well, just the things we were talking about, about how you can become fearful of the legal system. People can be convicted if even if there is not hard evidence that they actually murdered someone, I mean, you could charge them with perhaps a fraud, reckless endangerment, conspiracy to commit murder or something. All of those things together would definitely get them life in prison once you add up all the uh, consecutive charges and the consecutive sentencing, rather. But if there is no body, I mean, habeas corpus does often hold a lot of weight for many different jurors, but they were convicted on it. And make no mistake, I definitely think that they were responsible for her death, but how do you prove that in a court of law, even without proof people are convicted? It is um, thought-provoking in many different ways. And to talk about some thought-provoking elements of the true crime world, I would like to go on to something that was shared about Annika Ersberg and her... Um, cohort in crime. His name was Bob Cox. Annika Ersberg was convicted of being involved with two murders and sentenced to life in prison. It's what I call the stolen meat murders, and I have um, two episodes about that here on this channel. And Annika Ersberg was a Swedish national who came to the United States at a young age, and she developed a relationship with this guy named Bob Cox. And they found this what this um, scheme, if you want to call it, of stealing meat and then selling it to uh, people which I can only understand to be below market value. Like, they're even selling it to restaurants and such, but um, they, they have a stolen meat business going. And Annika Ersberg did something once where she's going into a truck to get the guy the stolen meat, but she's just the distraction, because then her boyfriend, Bob Cox, pulls out a gun and murders the guy. In short, they robbed him. Less than 24 hours later, the police are on their tail, they get into a shootout, and Bob Cox murders somebody else. Annika Ersberg is not the trigger person, but she's the distraction. When this police officer comes over to um, approach them, she pretends to be getting out her ID so that Bob Cox would have time to shoot the officer. And then later on, they got into that shootout that I mentioned, and Annika Ersberg isn't being the trigger person in that either, but she's helping Bob Cox reload. She's the accomplice. She's the distraction. She is the accessory. 
but the whole ethical question surrounding that is, should she have been given life in prison for her actions? And I have to give a shout-out to YouTube user Albert Forrell, who wrote something on the episode The Stolen Meat Murders. And he says, This is a very tragic story, but now, not then, two or more people can be sentenced to life for the murder of one in Sweden. It was after three bank robbers killed two cops, and they couldn't figure out who pulled the trigger. So obviously it can be changed when cops were killed over here. This was just a sob story because she was a woman. It wasn't like this happened on their first date. The Swedish authorities spent way too much time and money on her. As far as time and money goes, there was a very big effort to get Annika Ersberg extradited back to Sweden because at the time, she, was ser she had served 28 years in prison, which was one of the highest prison sentences for any Swedish national. But I think that um, the reason people talk about this case is because um, of that ethical question, should she have received life in prison if she didn't actually kill the person, but she simply provided the distractions. She helped a guy reload his handgun, and Bob Cox would go on to commit suicide, I believe. But um, I can agree with the part that there probably is a lot of intense focus on Annika Ersberg because she is a woman. I'm not going to pretend like things like that are not real, and people would be much more inclined to listen to her story. But I think it's the, um, it's the ethical question that has to be involved. The, and something important is where Albert Forrell hit the nail on the head. This is about how that this wasn't on their first date. She was an active participant in this. They had an illegal operation going of stealing meat, selling it to people, and then one time they just had to escalate that to murder. It was a stolen meat murder, and then the police were onto them, so someone else was murdered as well. And then Annika Ersberg went on to experience some other tragedies. Her son died in a car accident, and the father of her son um, passed away from a heart attack. The shock of the incident of um, his son dying in the car accident caused him to uh, have a heart attack and die. She was put into solitary confinement and um, just spending days upon days without anything, not even books or any material at all, and she contemplated suicide many times. But I, I just do have to go back to that. I think the reason why people want to zone in on this, and they want to ask that question, did she receive a fair punishment? And yes, she is um, out of jail now. As I said, she spent 28 years in prison, and then she went back to Sweden. The authorities um, brought her back to Sweden, and she actually has a TEDx talk about her story and about making decisions in life. But I would even want to ask you guys that one more time. Do you believe that somebody should receive life in prison if they were not the person who pulled the trigger? And you can respond any way you want. I mean, I think that it's very arguable. But if you're going to say no, then what do you do with a situation like what Albert Forrell was talking about, where three bank robbers killed two cops, but they don't know who was doing the shooting and nobody's confessing? Could you not just give them all life in prison? And in regards to a different um, type of uh, action, when we did the murder, yeah, the, when we did the episode on the murder of Vernon Smith, there were three participants in that one. Some guy named Sandy, we don't know who he is, but he's a Zodiac Killer suspect, J.C. Reed, and James Coleman. And they say that Vernon Smith is helping them fill a gas can. This is on the 3rd of June, 1963, in Southern California. 
they need some gas, they're trying to rob this guy Vernon Smith, and he's helping them fill a gas can. And then all of a sudden, this guy Sandy just snaps, and he stabs Vernon Smith to death. He parts ways from J.C. Reed and James Coleman, and they were later apprehended, and they were charged with second-degree murder. Well, now, they didn't. They didn't, um, commit the stabbing of Vernon Smith. Sandy did. So, what would you do in a situation like that? Should they be charged with murder? Absolutely. They weren't sentenced to life in prison, by the way. Um, the minimum sentence they were given was actually five years. It's like five years to, um... Well, I I want to I don't want to misstate that one. So I was about to say five years to life, but don't quote me on that one. I don't want to misstate something. But the point is, they're charged with murder, even though they didn't commit the stabbing. Absolutely, they should have been charged with it, because it's something that I learned on the television growing up. I was watching that show, World's Wildest Police Videos. I used to absolutely love that on Friday nights to watch World's Wildest Police Videos, hosted by Sheriff John Bunnell, retired. But I didn't know that that was just Friday night filler TV. However, they had brought up this incident once, where two guys are robbing a convenience mart. And then the police come, and they get into a shootout with the police. And one of the bullets kills the shopkeeper. I mean, they don't know, was it from the assailant? Was it from a police officer? But, like, they don't know who made the fatal shot. I mean, or at least they're not revealing it in the episode. But they said the guys who were robbing the convenience mart got charged with murder. Why? Because their explanation was very simple. They created the illegal situation, and they were responsible for everything that happened, including the death of that shopkeeper, the same way that J.C. Reed and James Coleman would have been responsible for the death of Vernon Smith. They're trying to rob the guy, and the situation boiled over, or one of the participants had um, a moment of rage that just came out, and he stabbed and murdered Vernon Smith. He is charged with murder. And those guys, though, were given much lighter sentences than Annika Ersberg's. But with the case of Annika Ersberg, she sh should she have been charged with murder? Ultimately, yes. Should she have been given life in prison? I'm tempted to say no for that crime. 20 years, 30 years, as well as um, sometimes people can be let off for good behavior because of overcrowding. But then... Do the victims really receive justice? And that is something we were exploring a lot when I was talking recently about the murder of Clarence Pellet. Clarence Pellet was killed by Frank Valentine, also known as Frank Dryman, who goes on to become a Zodiac killer suspect as well. And he was actually tracked down, Frank Valentine that is, and, um, used, and he was tracked down in Arizona by the grandson of Clarence Pellet, the person whom he had murdered, and he was using the alias Victor Houston at the time, running a wedding chapel in Arizona. But with that one, you would see very clearly that even though he spent time in jail and he was paroled, this occurred um, on April 4th of 1951, Frank Valentine murdered Clarence Pellet. It was a snowstorm that was going on in Montana. Clarence Pellet offered Frank Valentine a ride. He got in the car. They're driving for a little while, then Frank Valentine decides that he wants to rob Clarence Pellet. Clarence Pellet um, exited the car. He got on his knees, begged for life. Frank Valentine fired one shot that 
went into the dirt, more or less, so Clarence Pellet got up and tried to run, and then Frank Valentine proceeded to shoot him six times. The bullets that were found were also directly under him, meaning that after after Clarence Pellet was shot the first time, Frank Valentine walked on top of him and fired the gun directly above him into the ground. They actually had to dig one foot into the earth to remove the slugs that had been shot into Clarence Pellet. And then, of course, Frank Valentine was apprehended later on. He didn't get away with it. And he was sentenced to life in prison, actually sentenced to death twice. But then the third time he was sentenced to life in prison because some social activists uh, got involved with the case. And then he was um, sentenced to life, but did 11 years of that sentence. And he was um, released. No, um, actually, he did um, a, a little bit more. He did 13 years of the uh, life sentence. I was thinking of Donald Lee Booyak, who did 11 years for the murder of Otto Fawson. Frank Valentine did 13 years of the life um, of his life sentence. Got released in January of 1969. He was working in California at a furniture store for a while, but then he fled the state. All right, this guy has done time in jail, 13 years in prison, and then he, he, he ran away, became the longest-running absconding fugitive in Montana state history, and he was tracked down by Clarence Pellet, or actually uh, Clem Pellet, the grandson of Clarence Pellet. His name is Clem Pellet. He's the author of the book Dastardly about this. And Clem Pellet is actually an oral surgeon-turned-private investigator since his... Um, his work catching Frank Valentine. He found the guy in Arizona, and he simply did not show remorse for the murder of Clarence Pellet. Frank Valentine is simply saying, that wasn't me, that was that guy Frank Valentine. I'm now Victor Houston. And just because somebody has spent a long time in jail does not mean that they have been rehabilitated. Just because somebody has been paroled, it doesn't mean that they should have. I mean, with the case of Frank Valentine, absolutely not. The guy ran away. Longest absconding fugitive in Montana state history. He didn't follow through with the terms of his parole. And he also had trouble remembering the name of Clarence Pellet, the man that he had murdered. So you can see that these questions are things that we have to deal with. How do these people operate? Like, how do we find the appropriate sentences for people? I think it comes to a certain point when you just have to expect that if somebody even has a moment, uh, like a judgment call, that is out of control for a second, then and they murder somebody, they need to be sentenced to jail for life. Extreme circumstances pending. Of course, there are going to be exceptions that prove the rule, but if you've taken somebody else's life, somebody should go to jail for it, and they should go for life in prison. Maybe they can be let out, but there's a high chance that they're going to commit crimes again, and that's the reason why. And I did learn about some of this because of Dr. Todd Grande. It really is Todd Grande's assessment of Nick Godijan, who was the murderer of Dee Dee Blanchard. She is the mother of Gypsy Rose Blanchard. She was, I should say. Gypsy Rose Blanchard and uh, Nick Godijan orchestrated the murder of her mother, and Gypsy Rose was primarily the... Um, person who's doing all the planning, and Nick Godijan committed the murder of Dee Dee Blanchard by stabbing her. He was manipulated into it. I believe she pressured him into it. I believe it was mostly her idea. But the thing that Todd Grande shared about him was, if this guy 
could be manipulated so easily into committing murder, then perhaps he shouldn't be let out again. And that just seems to be a hard fact of life that we have to deal with. That just seems to be like a bitter pill that people have to swallow. And it seems like quite shocking. If someone has one day, one moment, when they have a lapse in judgment or they just do something that they know is wrong and they end somebody else's life, whether it's people like Annika Erzberg or people like Sandy who murdered Vernon Smith or people like Frank Valentine. I mean, with those guys, Frank Valentine and Sandy, if they could lose control so easily, then how how can they be released to the general public? If they can, if they have such poor impulse control to the point where they have the capability to end somebody's life because they got too angry or because their other criminal plans just got a little bit haywire so they killed somebody in haste, how can they be released to the general public? And I would love to hear any of your responses to that in the comments section below. When we're talking about murder cases, I would like to move something to something a little bit more famous, and that is O.J. Simpson and the murders of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson, his ex-wife. Back in 2019, somebody once left a comment on the channel saying, I used to think that O.J. Simpson was guilty, but because of you, Ned, I now think that he's innocent. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I mean, I talked about the O.J. Um, innocence theory a lot. I talked about the Jason Simpson theory, which is not exactly O.J. is innocent, but O.J. is guilty, but not of murder. That was the original title of William Deere's book on the subject. And then I also looked at the alternative theories, and I did discussions about them, because there was a very large O.J. truther movement in 2019. I don't know how big it is now, because there were a lot of people that were trying to um, convince the world that the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were not committed by O.J. Simpson, but either they were committed by the serial killer Glenn Rogers, who was known as the Casanova Killer, or they were committed by the two of them together, O.J. Simpson and Glenn Rogers, trying to get revenge on Nicole Brown Simpson for some reason. But what really happened... I never believed the O.J. is innocent theory, and I can actually tell you, flat out, I do believe that O.J. Simpson had an additional accomplice when Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson were murdered. I don't believe that he did it um, himself. Um, I don't think, I think that people get way too hunkered down on some of the witness testimony, such as the people who say that they did not observe any cuts on O.J. Simpson's hands when he was traveling from L.A. to Chicago when he's trying to catch that red eye. And he's in Chicago when he learns of the death of Nicole Brown Simpson. And they said he was so shocked that he smashed a glass in his hotel room. But they didn't find any blood in the hotel room. They found the broken glass. And I was like, well, you can cut yourself without leaving droplets of blood. I mean, especially if it's a very clean, fine cut then the blood doesn't come out immediately. And I um, I tried to weigh the merit, though, of this O.J. is innocent theory. I'm discussing it, but I never believed it, and I never wanted to evangelize it. Because um, I talked about it in one episode, and then somebody introduced me to Porkins Policy Radio, 
and the episodes where they featured Stephen Singular, who wrote a book about the subject, mostly talking about um, Mark Furman and his role in this. I mean, if anything, he uncovered that Mark Furman, perhaps the most famous um, detective from the O.J. Simpson case, the guy who just uh, pl pled the fifth during every um, chance he got on the stand, including the question about witness, um, excuse me, the question about evidence tampering. So Mark Furman was an acquaintance of Nicole Brown Simpson. He had actually met O.J. Simpson once in the 1980s, and he was so familiar with Nicole Brown Simpson that he even made comments about the boob job that she had had. I mean, those are his words, um, not mine, about her breast augmentation to his other colleagues. So, in short, they believed that he had it out for O.J., and they have this whole narrative that they've established. Do I believe it? No. For the sole fact is, they cannot explain how O.J. Simpson's Bruno Mali shoe prints ended up on um, in at the crime scene. The bloody shoe prints with that very particular pattern, and their only explanation was, oh, well, they were photoshopped. No, they weren't, because they were published in the newspapers. They, those photos went through the process of photo engraving. The skeptics were all over this, and not in the 2000s, not in the 2010s, back in the 90s, during the civil trial. And um, there's just so much evidence against O.J. Simpson in this. And um, there, was this, uh, there was this radio show, I think it was called Arcand or something, where it's a sports discussion program, but they open the phones, and they're like, okay, O.J. Simpson, former professional athlete, he's the juice, 2,000 yards in a season. He has an absolutely ridiculous life. He did some very hilarious movies with Leslie Nielsen, mostly just laughing at Leslie Nielsen, not at Officer Nordberg. But the thing is, though, when you look at the O.J. is innocent theory, they were asking the question, do you believe that O.J., was guilty, and all these people are calling in saying that he's innocent. They're like, why? And they're like, well, watch F. Lee Bailey's cross-examinations. Oh yeah, well, what did F. Lee Bailey say? They're like, uh, you gotta watch it for yourself. Not a whole lot of substance, but they're talking about the fibers from the knit cap that was found at the crime scene were found in O.J. Simpson's Bronco. I mean, let alone the blood evidence, let alone, I mean, just, um, Ron Goldman's blood and Nicole Brown Simpson's blood found in his car, yet it, for some reason it wasn't cleaned up. And to clear up that one rumor about O.J. Simpson um, and uh, Detective Philip Van Adder planning the blood evidence, they drew O.J. Simpson's blood after the Bronco was placed into evidence. And then the Bronco that is used in that very famous high-speed chase is actually the one that has been that was owned by A.C., by Al Callings. O.J. Simpson had a white Bronco, and Al Callings also had a white Bronco, because O.J. got a good deal on them from Hertz, rental car, back when he was their spokesperson. And the whole thing about the, the glove, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. No, that's just um, Johnny Cochran being silly. And in an effective way, O.J. was found not guilty. They won the case. I mean, the glove didn't fit because O.J. Simpson made sure that it didn't fit. And as far as Jason Simpson going, all I have to say is, if you think that Jason Simpson, the son of O.J. Simpson, murdered Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman, I would invite you just to watch the six-part miniseries that was produced by Martin Sheen, where they dismantle that theory. I don't think that that happened. I mean... Could Jason have been the, the accomplice that I said? Oh yeah, I think O.J. Simpson and some unknown accomplice. And that could, or 
vary from being the getaway driver to someone who actually was walk, walked out and he was holding the knife by OJ's own admission during the Judith Regan interview he said that there's this guy named Charlie that was present he said there were two people present you might not believe that but he said that that guy was holding the knife originally and OJ grabbed it from him they carried the knife because it was easier to transport a knife across state lines you didn't need a concealed weapons permit and another motivation for O.J. being uh, present at the uh, house where Nicole Brown Simpson was murdered is some people think that they were actually going there to slash her tires. Uh, O.J. and Charlie, whoever that is, whether that's Glenn Rogers, Jason Simpson, A.C., um, somebody else. Some this Maybe it is just a, a new friend that he has met. I don't believe any of those—I mean, I don't believe that any of them were the sole perpetrator. O.J. was there. He committed the crime, but somebody else was his accomplice, and there were two people exiting in the Bronco. So says me. I mean, I could be completely wrong about that. But yeah, a very big way to conclude the episode talking all about the O.J. as innocent theory. If you think that O.J. Simpson did not commit the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman, please put your ideas in the comments section below. And if there's anything that you would like covered on the show, you can put your ideas down there too. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. The show is on Teespring, and you can see any of the t-shirts that have been going up and down the screen. That is another way that you can support the show, but I would really love it if you guys check out the playlist with the old-fashioned black box recordings with the wonderful pink bubbles on there. Some throw Backs from 2019 available. And you can also get me on Instagram, blackboxnid88. Send anything you want into the DMs, Blackbox Online Radio on Facebook, and my personal Facebook is in the description box here. Okay, I will see you on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.